good morning. It's good to see you all today. It's uh, it's been a rough week, you know, in both both locally and worldwide. Um, you know, as you all know, Olathe East, the shooting that happened there on Friday, and you know, and we're thankful. We're all thankful that. There wasn't any life actually taken as a result of that, but but the amount of impact that that has, the way that can traumatize families. I've actually had at least three families already, you know, here today talking to me because they had kids or grandkids that were in the high school and just that made it Friday one of the longest days of the year for them, just just all fretting and worrying about what could be and might have been and, you know, all of that. Um, you know, and, and there's there's definitely a need of some healing. They're not just the physical healing of those who actually were shot, but, but uh, psychological, emotional healing and all that needs to take place. And then, again, I know last Sunday we prayed about what was going on in Ukraine, um, and you know that that uh, if you've had the TV set on at all this week, uh, you know that's only gotten worse. And, you know, this, this is uh, uh, impacting many, many Americans because we have a lot of people here, you know, from the Ukraine. Um, I know we've got next-door neighbors that were born and raised there, and, and every day she calls her folks, and they're right in the middle of, some of the territory now that is is owned by the Russians or they've possessed it. And, you know, and she just, in talking to her, you can tell how emotional, for obvious reasons, you know, that is. And, and this is an example of one of those times, you know, where we got stuff that is beyond our control. Uh, but it is obviously a time to call upon the Lord and to be leaning upon him. Um, and we don't know where that in the Ukraine, all, all that's going to end up going. Um, and we need to be praying that, that that's, that's going to that's gonna stop and stop soon um, with no more loss of life than what has already been experienced. So I want to ask if you would join me in prayer as, as we get ready to go into today's message. Father, we ask for your help. We call upon you. We are to cast all of our cares upon you. And these are a couple of cares that both near and far that, that uh, are impacting people. And so we pray for all of the families involved in the situation down to late the east and, and um, the student body and, and just some of that, that healing and, and working through all those emotions. Uh, of what happened. We also pray for those that, that were shot. Um, and Father, we just pray for for continued healing for them as well. And we just put that whole situation into your hands, Lord, and know that, that, uh, um, that this hasn't escaped your notice. And so we just ask for your intervention there. And we also ask for your intervention with what's going on in Ukraine and uh, just with the tragic loss of life and with the prospect of what still 
could end up being the case, Lord, we just call upon you and, and just pray that, that this might come to an end soon. Um, Lord, we just we pray for those that are being so traumatized and who are by the millions now forced out of their homes and, and going um, as refugees uh, into other countries. And, and uh, Lord, it's just something that so many of us, we just haven't experienced anything close to that. And so we, we just ask that in a big way your, your presence might be felt and your strength and comfort during these uh, significant days of uncertainty um, that the Ukrainian people are dealing with. And we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We've, we've been covering a lot of ground in the series of messages that we're in right now. As you'll recall, this particular series started right at the first of the year, and it's going uh, to Easter Sunday. And uh, so I think this is like message number 10, you know, in this ongoing series. And in the last message or so, message or two, we've, we've kind of made a significant step now where, where most of our messages have been focused on the Old Testament account. Although we've been dipping in to the New Testament multiple times for obvious reasons in our messages um, now, now we are at that point in time where Jesus has come. Jesus is here on earth. And, and one of the obvious questions that comes to mind in a person's um, um, process of, of hearing the gospel and, and as they begin to, to warm up to embracing the gospel is, is it finding an answer to the question, Why? You know, why did Jesus come? And the, the reality of the matter is that there's more than one answer, you know, to that question. Now, there's the obvious answer is he came to save the lost, okay? And we'd be getting ahead of ourselves for me to talk about that today. Kurt's going to be dealing with that in a big way in a couple of Sundays. Um, but but that, that's the obvious answer if you're familiar with the, the story that is found between the covers, you know, of our Bible is that he came to save the lost. But, but that's not the only reason that he came. He came to bring teaching, to help open our minds and open our eyes to understanding uh, what God's will is for our lives better and, and the kind of values that we are to have. We're going to get into that next Sunday. We're going to have a message. It's just going to be devoted to talking about his teaching. But there's even more than that. Jesus came to reveal the Father to us. There's a couple of scriptures that are pretty significant about this one. In the first chapter of John, it says, No one has ever seen God, the only Son who is truly God and is closest to the Father, has shown us what God is like. So this is one of the reasons that Jesus came is to help us to have a close-up understanding and view of God, the Father, and to be able to know him better. And as a matter of fact, late in Jesus's ministry, he kind of had a, a little discussion with a couple of his disciples. It's recorded in John 14. And uh, Jesus said this, if you really knew me, you would know my father as well. 
From now on you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And I can just kind of picture Jesus, right, at this moment in time as it says he answered. I think he probably took in a deep breath, you know, and then he said, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So this was one of the important reasons that Jesus came into the world is to reveal the Father to us. But again, there's more. He came to destroy the devil. And we, we've got a message that's going to be hitting on that later in the series. Um, but it's not just the devil, it's the works of the devil. You know, and, and the, the control of, of death and all of that. I think of Hebrews chapter 2. It says, now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. The reality of the matter is because Jesus came into this world, now as a result, we don't have to fear death anymore. Death is still something that's going to touch us multiple times in our life because of loved ones and and eventually ourselves, you know, in experiencing it. Uh, death is part of the reality of living life. But we don't have to live our lives in like fear and trembling of the whole prospect of death. Jesus is the one that made that possible for us to be freed from that. So like I said, there's multiple reasons. I think I've listed four reasons. And our message today is going to talk about a fifth reason. And we're going, to, we're going to really focus in on this. One of the reasons that Jesus came into the world was to give us an example to live by. And this is something that as you go through the New Testament, you're going to see multiple passages of Scripture. And we're clearly not going to be talking about you know, even the largest percentage of those, but just a few of those in today's message. I think of this one in John 13 where Jesus said to his disciples, I've given you an example that you should follow. And this was on the very last evening that Jesus spent with his disciples because he was going to be arrested later that night and by that time the next day he was, he was going to have been crucified. And, and so this is at the very end of his time with the disciples, and he spells it out to them. I've given you an example that you should follow. You know, as people, we tend to be imitators. We see that um, all around us. We, we especially see it among little kids. Little kids love to imitate adults, right? You know, um, here, here's an old picture of... of uh, child that is imitating his dad and he's imitating him by wearing his coat that's a picture that was taken 59 years ago yeah I was two years old at the time and uh and apparently I was having a pretty good time you know pretending to be dad and wearing his coat now back in those days my dad used to smoke he uh, had quit smoking about the time I became a teenager but he made the progression from from uh, 
cigarettes to cigars to pipes, you know, that, that, that whole routine. Well, like I said, kids love to imitate. And so, yeah, I kind of picked up smoking a pipe there for a while, too. And now, I, don't ask me about the glasses, because I don't have any story behind that. Uh, uh, you know, I have no clue where I got those. But, I mean, the more I look at it, the more cool I look. You know, so I, I might have to go get me a pair of those again. But uh, kids, this is the way kids are, and you've seen it. You've seen it with your own kids. Some of you have seen it with grandkids or even great-grandkids, this tendency to imitate. But the, the reality is that it's not just little kids that like to imitate. Adults do it too. You know, there, there was a time not too long ago, just a few years ago, that a lot of hairdressers and stuff like that had to kind of learn how to give a new kind of haircut because all of a sudden there was this trend in Kansas City that a lot of people were starting to get new haircuts. Well, lo and behold, it was because this guy showed up. And, uh, and when he showed up, a lot of people wanted that. They wanted to be like him. And, and uh, you know, and he's definitely got a, a specific uh, way of cutting his hair. And so we see that with kids. We see that even with some adults as well. You know, this tendency. In fact, in fact, that's, isn't that really where fashion and style and all that stuff oftentimes comes into play? It's when someone who is real popular, someone who is liked and looked up to, you know, when they wear their hair a certain way, when they wear clothes of a certain type, then all of a sudden other people begin to wear clothes like that or to do their hair in similar fashion. And, uh, and that is oftentimes where fashion kind of comes into play. Well, when you look in the Bible, it's kind of like God wants to take that tendency and he wants to harness it. He wants to turn it in a good direction, in a direction that is both going to bring him glory, but is also going to be beneficial for us. And one of the things that you pick up as you're thumbing through the New Testament is you're going to see it over and over and over again being taught in the pages of the New Testament, and that is that God wants us to be Christ-like. He wants us to be Christ-like. Once you make a decision for Jesus, once you accept him as your Lord and your Savior, something that is to kick into motion at that moment in time involves a process, a process of being conformed to the likeness of Christ. And so you're going to see passages you know, scattered through the four Gospels that are talking about this, but you're also going to clearly see it in the letters of, of what's found in the rest of the New Testament. And one of the passages that comes to my mind is something that Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. He said, for those God foreknew, based on God's foreknowledge, and of course God is God, so, so he, knows, he knows tomorrow as well as he knows yesterday, right? And so for those God foreknew, he also predestined, he predetermined that they would be conformed to the likeness of his son. This has been a part of the plan of God for a long time. And we talked here about five Sundays ago that God has been thinking about us for a long time. 
on the Sunday that the message involved God's chosen people, one of the things that, that uh, we looked at was a verse in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 that, that spelled it out for us. Um, and man, what a big, impactful verse. It says that before God laid the foundations of the earth, he chose you and he chose me. Before creation even took place, we were on God's mind. And, and so it wasn't just that God was thinking of our existence, but it's passages like this, that way back when, this is what God was planning, that we would be conformed to the likeness of his son. And so it's not surprising when you open up the first page of the Bible and you look at Genesis chapter 1, and you come across a verse like verse 27. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This has always been a part of God's plan. God made mankind. He made them to be a reflection of himself. But though we were made in God's image, things got distorted. Sin twisted. Um, things got twisted because of sin in, in what God was wanting to accomplish. And that's what redemption is largely all about. Jesus coming to restore what sin destroyed. This is what spiritual growth is all about. You might remember Jesus meeting with a fellow at nightfall um, a guy by the name of Nicodemus. It's found early in John's gospel, John chapter 3. This is the passage that talks about being born again. And that's a drum we beat loudly because Jesus made it very clear to Nicodemus, you must be born again. He said it not just once. He said it twice in that passage. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And so he came at nightfall because he didn't, he didn't want other Pharisees seeing that he was being friendly with Jesus, but he was really seeking truth um, from Jesus, and this is what Jesus took advantage of the opportunity and spelled it out to him. You must be born again. But even that particular teaching and concept that we we preach and we hold dearly to, it was never intended to be an end in itself. The new birth was never intended to be an end in itself. Just like physical birth. There is a growth process that is to happen in what follows. That's the way it is spiritually. As infants in Christ, we are to start growing. We are to start becoming more and more like Jesus. And so this is why the Bible teaches this concept that we are to be Christ-like. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not like, you know, when you were eight years old and you gave your life to Christ or when you were 28 years old and you gave your life to Christ, you went to bed and presto changeo, when you woke up the next morning, you were a totally different person in the way you talked, in the way you treated people, in the way you acted and reacted, and just in all ways you were different. No, it doesn't work that way. It is a process. But it's a process that's supposed to happen. One of the verses I like in the New Testament, 
a person reading through this chapter, Acts chapter 4, they, they wouldn't necessarily think of it as being a part of the subject that we're talking about today. But whenever I see this, that's what I reflect on. It's Acts chapter 4, verse 13. This is after Jesus' ministry, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection. Jesus has ascended back into heaven. And the disciples, you know, the church is born and coming into existence. But it's meeting with some resistance among the Jewish authorities. And in fact, the ruling council of the day was called the Sanhedrin. And uh, uh, Peter and John, they were a part of something that created a stir in the temple area. And so Peter and John were called before the authorities, and they were basically verbally chastised that, that uh, that's enough of this. We don't want you, you know, talking about Jesus and stuff like that. But it's interesting in however long they were before this ruling council, we don't know if it was a 15-minute meeting, we don't know if it was a two-hour meeting, the scripture doesn't tell us, but, but it does tell us what the impressions were that were left on the Sanhedrin. It says in verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And indeed, they had. Peter and John, they had just spent like over three years. Scholars would estimate, you know, based on, on the number of Passovers and all that are recorded in the Gospels, that that they estimate it was right close to three and a half years that they had spent with Jesus. So they had spent some considerable time. And, and the whole point is, when I look at that passage, is basically what these Jewish authorities were seeing is that Jesus had rubbed off on them. You know, they were having flashbacks as they looked at James and John and they listened to James and John. They were having flashbacks to some of their encounters that they had had with Jesus. They thought that they had dealt with Jesus. They thought that they had gotten him out of their hair once and for all. And now all of a sudden, they're dealing with people that seem to resemble Jesus. But isn't that the way it's supposed to be? Exactly. That's this whole concept, this idea of Christ-likeness that, that Peter and John, they, they had been in the process for three and a half years and they were becoming more and more like Christ. They were resembling him. And so the fact that people were having flashbacks and thinking of Jesus while they were looking at these guys, you know, shouldn't come by way of great surprise. And that's the way it should work. There are a lot of passages that are tied to this process. The fact that when we come to Christ, we don't remain the same. We change. Let, let me show you one of the passages that we're going to look at this a whole lot more here in about three Sundays, um, because in three Sundays, we're going to talk about the church and, and the according to the biblical account, what's the role the church plays in the whole storyline and everything. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, is, is always a passage that my mind goes to when I think about the church. But yet it deals as well with the subject we have today, so I can't skip over this. Here's what it says. It was he who gave some to be apostles, 
some to be prophets, some to be pastors, or some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Built up to what point? Look at what it says. And become mature. What does maturity look like? Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What we're talking about here is the church. There's leadership that has been established in the church. And the purpose of the leadership is so that God's people might be equipped for for service so that the church body might be growing and might be maturing to what end? Christ's likeness to the full measure of Christ. And it's not even done yet. It says, then we will no longer be infants. You know, when you're born again, you're a spiritual infant. But you don't stay in that vulnerable stage, that stage of being gullible and naive. You don't stay there spiritually. And that's what it says here. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And uh, um, as I've pointed out before, when it says each part, that is a reference to you. That is a reference to me. This passage is speaking to us. It's speaking about us. But, but overall, what's the passage all about? The passage is about growth. The passage is talking about us becoming like Christ. And, and it, it doesn't end there. What Paul is saying in Ephesians 4 it does, certainly doesn't end there because you can follow uh, some of the, the, the rest of the verses in that chapter. Like verse 17 says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the, in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles. Now, it's, it's not uncommon in, in some of the New Testament writings that the word Gentiles is used uh, synonymously with unbelievers. Uh, and this is a case in point that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Okay, so, so you don't live the way that you used to live. You're, you're moving beyond that. And that's the very point that whole chapter is getting at and into the beginning of chapter 5. It says here in verses 22 to 24, you were taught with regard to your former way of life, the way that you used to live, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Off with the old, on with the new. You see, it's all a part of this transition. It's all part of of this growth that is to be happening in our lives as believers. And Paul certainly didn't limit um, his teaching to the book of Ephesians in in this matter. 
You know, this is something that he talked about repeatedly in his writings. It was that important that people understood that they were to be in this process of growth and development and becoming more Christ-like. For example, in Galatians, a passage that we are more familiar with, you know, because of the fruit of the Spirit, we read this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. You know, that, that's a good list. That's, that's a nice list. But do you know what he's saying here? He's basically saying that, that these, which basically were character traits of Jesus, these are to be character traits of ours. This is to be descriptive of our life and the way that we're living our life and the way that we treat people day in and day out, that these words are, are descriptive of us. As a matter of fact, right before he said all of that, he was talking about uh, another list um, that really stands in contrast to this one. I don't have a slide for it, but let me just read it. In verse 19, he says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. In other words, the list continues. That's not an exhaustive list. But what he's describing there or listing out there is, is a bunch of uh, uh, character traits that used to define our lives to one degree or another. But it's not what defines our lives anymore because now these are the character traits that, that are to define who we are and, and the way that we're approaching living our life. And it's interesting that, that uh, at the beginning of this passage, before he talks about the, these uh, acts of the sinful nature and after he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, kind of the bookends of the passage, he's referencing the Holy Spirit. In verse 16, he says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And then he lists out, you know, what the acts of the sinful nature are. And then he closes the passage by saying, Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That's basically another way of saying, cooperate with what the Spirit of God is trying to do. And part of the point that Paul is trying to make here is that this isn't just something that you're going to be able to accomplish by sheer determination, that you are just going to try really hard to change. You're going to try really hard to be a different person than who you used to be because willpower can't accomplish it. You might be able temporarily for a day or two or a short stretch. You might be able to alter your behavior and, and the way you act and react and all of this. But, but eventually, your old nature is going to surface again. Because you and I, we do not have the ability, we do not have the strength in order to change. A root change in our life that, that lasts but that's the specialty of the Holy Spirit. 
And that's a big part of what the work of sanctification and all, uh, to use a big 50-cent word in the New Testament, the work of the Holy Spirit is all about, is to bring about this lasting kind of change. And so that's why these verses are kind of the bookends of that passage, where it's talking about, well, maybe this is this kind of stuff it used to describe your life, but now this, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is what describes your life, and it's because of the influence and the work of the Spirit in your life. Here's the thing, though. It involves your actions, but it goes beyond your actions. All these passages, they're not just talking about actions. In fact, if you go back into that Ephesians 4 passage that we spent a few minutes on, and you look more closely at verse 17, at verse 22 to 24, you're going to see something there that goes beyond actions. Let me, let me use a passage I referenced early to, to illustrate this. John chapter 13, we have um, this passage where Jesus had said to his disciples, I'll give you, I've given you an example that you should follow. Now, the context was what? When did he say that? Remember? Yeah, washing the feet. Right after he had washed the disciples' feet. Okay, this, this was the Last Supper, and later this evening, um, Jesus was going to be arrested, which was going to lead into to the trial and the flogging and the crucifixion and everything the next day. And so Jesus had just washed their feet. Now, when we read John chapter 13, oftentimes what we see and what we focus our attention on primarily has to do with the actions, the things that he was doing. But there's something here that, that was behind all of that that I think is critical. If we're going to understand the whole Christ-likeness thing, we need, we need to understand that. So in a manner of speaking, we kind of need to put ourselves in the corner of that room and just be observing what is playing out as Jesus went around and washed 24 feet in that room. First of all, what was motivating him to do this? Now, we may not be able to observe that entirely. That we get the insight of right here from the text. But yet we oftentimes just get right past it because we really want to get into the story of the feet. But verse 1 set the tone for us. Verse 1 says, It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Jesus did not wash the disciples' feet because of a sense of duty. Because, okay, well, somebody needs to do this. So I guess I'll do it. That is not what was driving his actions in the upper room. It was love that was driving his actions. That is what caused Jesus to get up, take his outer garment off, go over and get the basin of water and the towel, and to go around one by one to be washing their feet. It was love. That was driving all of this. Now, another thing that you will notice as you stand in the corner of that room and you observe what is playing out in John 13, and it's something that oftentimes our mind, we don't even think about this, but if you were standing there watching it, it probably would be something you would pick up on. 
even after Jesus was done, from all indications of what we're reading, there was still somebody with dirty feet. There's nothing said about Jesus' feet being washed. It doesn't say Jesus went over to that basin and washed his feet and then he methodically went around the room and washed everybody's feet. No. Or that he washed them at the very end or that someone else got up and then washed his feet. There, there is not even a reference to Jesus' feet. And so basically what we're left thinking is that after Jesus had washed everyone else's feet, he put his outer garment back on and reclined back at the table and he still had dirty feet. So there's something here that is going on where Jesus is putting the needs of the others before his own needs. He's not even addressing some of his own needs because he's focused on their needs. And I think that's key to understanding these final words that Jesus said, you know, about I've come to set an example. Now that you've seen what I've done, you need to be doing likewise. There's another thing that, that you would notice as you see kind of chronologically as things play out. Unfortunately, sometimes when we look at a passage of Scripture, we look at that passage and we really don't understand it in a timeline as to what immediately preceded it or what is following it next. We just see it in kind of isolation, if you will. But at this particular moment in time, this wasn't the most convenient thing time-wise for Jesus because it's just a matter of a couple hours Jesus is no longer going to be a free individual he's going to be in custody he's the mocking and ridicule and all that stuff is going to start happening because what happened at Gethsemane and the arrest that took place there that's all going to be playing out and and throughout the night the trials and then the crucifixion the next day. So Jesus has maybe a couple hours of freedom left. If you knew for sure you only had a couple hours, how would you spend that time? It wasn't the most convenient thing for Jesus to be addressing a need. But yet that's exactly what he chose to do. is to spend time doing something that no one else was willing to do. Love motivated him, as we talked a moment ago. But he was spending some of the last freedom he had to wash feet of others, to address a need. And, and talking about it being inconvenient, when you're reading in the text, you see that the meal had been served. Jesus got up from the table and took off his outer garment and then started washing feet. Jesus has got food right there. But he's left it. His food's getting cold. You know, not, not the best time, right, to be taken away from the table. But again, it's very telling. Because it's more than the actions. It's something that we see even deeper beyond the actions that we need to tune into. This whole business of being Christ-like, it's not just having to do with what a person did as far as what Jesus did. It's deeper than that. Being Christ-like involves a whole new way of thinking. And that's really at the root of all of this. I'm going to show you a passage of Scripture that 
that uh, you probably don't normally um, tie in to all of this, although for some of you, as soon as I start showing it, you're going to connect the dots and you'll be, oh, yeah. But for others of you, maybe you've never made this connection before. But it's what was going on in Jesus' mind. As he was approaching Calvary, the crucifixion and all, what was going on in his mind? It's not a matter of speculation. It's not a matter of us making some assumptions. We know what was going on in Jesus' mind. Let me take you there. It's Philippians chapter 2. And this, by the way, the verses I'm going to show you here, this is your memory work for this week because it has everything to do with what it is that we're talking about here today. In verse 3 of that chapter, it says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Okay, now this doesn't say anything about Jesus. All right, well, we'll get to that. What it does say, though, is that we are not to be driven by, by selfishness. We are not to, to approach life where everything around us revolves around us. That we're at the center. No. No. We, there's supposed to be humility here. And we are putting other people's needs uh, on a priority list as more important even than our own needs. Look at what the next verse does because it drives that thought even deeper. It says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And so, yeah, Jesus, he, he wasn't looking out for his dirty feet and the need that he had there which was a very practical need, but instead he was focused on others and the need that they had. And that's very much what, what uh, verse 4 here in Philippians 2 is saying. Okay, but why are we using this passage to talk about Jesus and the mind of Jesus? That's verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What we read in verse 3 what we read in verse 4, it is a breakdown of understanding the attitude that Jesus had. And, and it goes on in verse 6. These are what the following verses start talking about. Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, and being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, these verses are all ramping up to talking about the, old, the ultimate demonstration of where Jesus put other people's needs before his own. He was thinking of others. The whole reason, the whole reason that, that, that Jesus did what he did is he was putting other people's needs before his own. This explains why Jesus spent so much time around riffraff to the point of developing a reputation of being a friend of sinners. This explains why Jesus, on the night before his crucifixion, was on his hands and knees washing dirty feet because he was putting their needs before his own. This explains why Jesus would reach out on occasion and 
literally touch lepers who no one else would get near to. It's because Jesus was putting their needs before his own. This is why Jesus on occasion when he was around people who were crying because they had lost a loved one, he too shed tears because he was feeling their pain, their emotional needs and all at that time. This is why Jesus on some occasions when he had taught for multiple hours and it was getting late in the day and it was time to send people home, but he wasn't willing to send them home on empty stomachs. Instead, he wanted them to be able to have something to eat. And so we have the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000 with sack lunches. This is what was behind all of that, is that Jesus was thinking about other people's needs. He was putting what they needed as more important than what he personally needed. This is why he set aside his glory in heaven. This is what verses 6, 7, 8, and 9 are talking about in the chapter is that he temporarily set aside his glory in heaven and took on human flesh and humbled himself in becoming a man and dying, dying on the cross because he was putting others' needs before his own. He didn't approach life as though he was the center of it all and it revolved around him. The way he saw it is that other people were more important. What they needed was more important. That attitude is what influenced his decisions. That attitude is what, is what influenced his actions. And this is why you're going to find in multiple places scattered throughout the New Testament verses like Romans 12 2. It says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. This is where the transformation into Christ's likeness begins. It's not here with your hands. It's not with your feet. It's right here. It's your mind, the very attitudes of thought that you have. Being conformed to the likeness of Christ begins right here. It's not just a matter of actions it's it's more than mimicking Jesus's actions you know those pictures I showed you of me when I was two years old that was all about just mimicking some actions there wasn't any changes going up here I was still a two-year-old and I was going to throw that coat aside and you know tuck away my pipe till a future time and I was going to go back to playing with my, my Tonko trucks or whatever it was I was playing with, running and chasing chickens or whatever it was that I was, I was still a two-year-old and my mind was still a two-year-old. There wasn't a change happening up here. It was just imitation of actions. But the very concept of what we're looking at in the Bible, it goes way beyond just imitating some actions. This is why God's word is indispensable. You need to regularly be getting into God's word. You know, because it has the power of, of, of creating change, lasting change in your life. This is one opportunity, but this is only one opportunity in today's world. You've you, we've all got individual copies of this. We, we can also listen to it, you know, on our smartphones and stuff like that. We should regularly be exposing ourselves to God's Word. It doesn't mean you have to read through the Bible in a year and be a 
become a part of that program. That's just, that's just one, one approach to making sure we're a part of God's Word. But you need to regularly be a part of God's Word because of the change it can bring to pass in our lives. You need to regularly be experiencing um, the, the friendship and companionship of brothers and sisters in Christ. And I know that was threatened in a major way these last couple of years with the pandemic. You know, the whole thing about separation and staying at home and all of this. And boy, that was going exactly the opposite direction. You know, there is extreme importance to fellowship. You know, it's like the scripture says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. You know, we, we need that fellowship that can help promote the change and for us to stay on task and to keep our focus. And we need the help of the Spirit of God. We need to be cooperating with them, responding accordingly to his nudges and his encouragements because he specializes in the work of transformation. The Spirit is all about bringing change to pass. And so today we're going to end this time with uh, um, our time of communion. And so I want you to do two things. You know, during this time, most definitely I want you to reflect on Jesus and what he did when he went to the cross on your behalf and how he put your needs before his own and he died there so that you could have forgiveness, you could be set free from your sins. So this is a time to reflect on that and to reflect on the high price that he paid, a time for us to, to prayerfully express our gratitude to him. But I also want to encourage you to use this time to be inspired by him. Not just his actions, but the very attitudes that he had that took him to the cross. And might those attitudes he had become attitudes we have in our daily lives. And we're going to be benefited. The world's going to be benefited. And God's going to be glorified when that happens. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word and thank you for the clarity of what Scripture teaches in regards to something that perhaps in some ways some of us have kind of approached in a simplistic way of thinking of the example of Jesus and becoming Christ-like. And we just primarily just think about some of the things he did. But this morning, Lord, your word has challenged us to go beyond that and to talk about the very attitudes of the heart that Jesus had that we need to have as well. And we pray that you'll bring about that change through your church, through, through your word, and through the indwelling spirit. Thank you, Father, for loving us so much that you didn't leave us the way we were. You saved us, and you're changing us. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.